Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Hello, my name is Paul Friedman. I'm chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine, and I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Michael Cullen. Um, Mike is an associate program director for our fellowship program and an expert echocardiographer. Um, and today we're going to talk about imaging in the initial evaluation of suspected endocarditis. So Mike, welcome. Thank you. And the first question may be, when do you suspect endocarditis to then begin with the imaging component? Yeah, that's, that's a great point, Paul. And this can be quite insidious. It can be quite challenging. I think um, you need to look at a few different things. So first of all, what, what, is, what are the patient's risk factors? So you want to suspect infective endocarditis in patients with risk factors like valve disease, prosthetic valves, IV drug use, congenital heart disease, or an immunocompromised state. If you have a patient like that that presents with unexplained fever for more than 48 hours over 38 degrees Celsius, or new regurgitation, whether it's defined echocardiographically or by physical exam, those factors together, so risk factors plus either fever or new regurgitation should raise your index of suspicion for infective endocarditis. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, of course, as an electrophysiologist, the other risk factor always on my mind is, is there an implanted device, which unfortunately can increase the risk of um, right-sided endocarditis. And, um, you know, in my mind, I always divide endocarditis into right-sided, left-sided, native valve, prosthetic valve. Um, but when you're examining the patient, you know, uh, maybe we should just very briefly go over that and then we'll, we'll delve into the imaging components. What do you look for? Right, exactly. So, you know, endocarditis can manifest in a number of, of different ways. So, and the physical exam is really going to be, is really going to be key. So a comprehensive physical exam is going to be necessary. You're going to start with the cardiac physical exam. You're going to want to listen for any new regurgitant murmurs. That's going to be the key, the key finding to look for. Um, you're going to move to a neurological exam. Neuro and, you know, as cardiologists, we're not typically doing comprehensive neurological examinations, but we should have some sense of, of assessing clinically, either historically or with physical exam, neurological deficits, because these patients can have um, embolic events to the head that can, that can cause serious complications if they go undetected. Then you're going to want to move to the, the skin and the peripheral examination. So do patients have um, peripheral stigmata of endocarditis. What does that mean? Things like Oslo's nodes, okay? Oslo's nodes are those painful lesions on, on the fingers and toes. The way I like to remember that is Oslo equals ouch, okay? Do they have Janeway lesions, okay? Janeway lesions, in contrast to Oslo's nodes, are going to be painless lesions. They're also going to be on the, on, the, on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. They're going to be sort of erythematous macules. Um, does the patient have any splinter hemorrhages in their fingernails? And in terms of splinter hemorrhages, you're looking not necessarily for the distal splint, uh, lesions in the nail beds that occur in a more traumatic setting, but more of the proximal lesions. That's going to be more consistent with an embolic phenomenon. Um, then you're going to be looking at the eye exam. That's actually going to be a really important part of endocarditis. Again, not something we typically do um, as cardiologists, but something that can really tell us a lot about these patients. Because if you see these um, exudative lesions in the retina, that can be consistent with Roth spots. And the way I like to remember that is Roth equals retina. So you've got 
ouch equals Oslo's nodes and Roth equals retina. That's a way to remember some of these, some of these peripheral stigmata of infective endocarditis. So those are all going to be important things to look for on your physical examination before you even get to the imaging piece of evaluating these patients. That's great. So you have a patient, they've been febrile for three days, urine maybe has some uh, blood and protein in it. Absolutely. And you're worried. Absolutely. Tell us about imaging then. Yeah, well, I'm, I actually want to make a point. So before you image, you got to do a few different things. So you got to put the patient in the hospital. Um, these patients should not be managed in an outpatient setting. And you want to get them to a hospital where you can involve a multidisciplinary team. Endocarditis is a really complex disease. Um, it, it involves not only cardiology, infectious disease, cardiac surgery, potentially neurology, potentially cardiac anesthesia. So you want to get them to a place where they can have access to all of these specialists. And then you need to get blood cultures. Okay. Um, people always jump to antibiotic therapy, but we need to know what the bug is because that's going to have a really big impact on treatment. So you got to get your cultures, then you get some empiric antibiotics on board, then you think about your imaging. Now, in terms of imaging, echo, transthoracic echo is going to be your go-to test. can tell you a lot about not only valve lesions, but also impact of valve lesions on ventricular size, function and hemodynamics. So people with suspected endocarditis, they're going to get a transthoracic echo. Most patients with infective endocarditis are going to end up with a transesophageal echo as well. The guidelines will say that you need to get a TEE if you've got a high-risk bug, staph aureus, a fungal organism, enterococcus. Okay? If you have an intracardiac lead, like you mentioned earlier, um, or if the patient has a persistent fever, there's some concern for complications, they're not doing well, they're not getting better, or there is a prosthetic valve. Now, in reality, I think if the index of suspicion is high enough, most patients probably deserve both a transthoracic echo and a transesophageal echo because they give very complementary pieces of information. So those, those are going to be your go-to tests for infective endocarditis. Then you get into some other imaging modalities. Okay, when do you think about doing a cardiac CT? Cardiac CT has a, is, is a class 2A indication in the most recent valve guidelines. It's really going to be helpful if you're looking particularly around the aortic root. Say you have a prosthetic aortic valve. There's concern about a perivalvular abscess. Coming from someone who does a lot of TEEs, it can be tough to see from the posterior aspect of the aortic root to the anterior aspect of the aortic root when there's a lot of shadowing from a aortic prosthesis. So getting a, um, so getting a CT can really help you see the aortic root circumferentially. And then um, the guidelines have really elevated the role of FDG PET CT in the evaluation of endocarditis. They've added a new class 2A recommendation in the most recent, recent version of the guidelines for patients with possible infective endocarditis by the Duke criteria. Now, the Duke criteria gets pretty complicated. There's the major criteria, the minor criteria. Um, I think that's, that's something that, that, can be, that can be challenging to memorize. But if you have, I think the bottom line that you want to remember clinically is if you have patients that are on the fence, 18 FDG PET CT can be a really good way to sort of tip patients over from possible endocarditis to definite infective endocarditis or maybe reveal an alternative diagnosis. So the guidelines have said that if you have a patient with that in that intermediate range, PET-CT can be a really good differentiator. And I would add to that that particularly in patients with prosthetic valves, um, where, where sometimes echo may not be able to, to pick up subtle areas of abscess or inflammation.
Well, that's great. Uh, thank you for that very comprehensive summary of the imaging types and where they all fit together. Um, so you've made the diagnosis and you're worried about complications. Yeah. Tell me about um, what complications you worry about and how you make those diagnoses. Yeah, so complications, I like to think about them in terms of three different flavors. You've got local complications, systemic complications, and immunological complications. Now, imaging is going to be really important for the first two, local and systemic. The immunological complications are going to be things like the Oslo's nodes and the Roth spots that we, we talked about earlier, um, glomerular nephritis, um, and uh, potentially a positive rheumatoid factor. Imaging is going to be, is going to be um, less important there. Now, where imaging comes in is trying to identify local complications and systemic complications. By local complications, we mean things like valve destruction. So valve perforation uh, that can lead to frank and fluid regurgitation, precipitate congestive heart failure, cause a lot of clinical um, instability. And then the other type of local complication that we, that we, we care about is um, perivalvular extension. Um, you know, and perivalvular extension can extend into the conduction system, potentially precipitating heart block. Echo is going to really be the go-to, typically transesophageal echo for evaluating for local complications, but we can use other non-invasive tests as well. Even a simple electrocardiogram can be really important in these patients because if you see progressive first-degree AV block, that can suggest abscess erosion into the conduction system, which has a lot of prognostic implications. We already talked about the role of CT. I think in a patient with an aortic prosthesis, um, cardiac CT has a particular niche in the evaluation of complications as well. And then we have systemic complications. So infective endo, you know, patients with infective endocarditis can have embolization to essentially any vascular bed. So you're really thinking about chest and CT imaging. You're thinking about intracranial imaging with the, with the CT or an MRI. You're thinking about potential spinal imaging if there's concern about osteomyelitis or vertebral abscess formation. Um, and, and so it really becomes a, a, a matter of um, extracardiac imaging to look for those systemic complications. But I think, I think the key is to be able to suspect them to, to be able to focus your um, assessment on your imaging assessment on where you might suspect complications based on your, your initial clinical impression. You really underscore just how complex patients with endocardi endocarditis can be and the, really the need for multidisciplinary support for imaging and management and, and therapy, um, which brings us to the issue of management. Now, our, our overriding theme uh, in this discussion of endocarditis is imaging. Mm -hmm. um, so is there a role for imaging in terms of the management of endocarditis? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what you find on imaging is going to dictate how aggressive you're going to be in terms of managing these patients. So we already talked about potential neurological complications. If you have any suspicion of neurological embolic events, the patient's going to need prompt intracranial imaging. Typically with an MRI, you could also get a CT if you need to do something a little quicker or you're concerned about hemorrhage. Um, patients with local complication like valve destruction or perivalvular extension or intracardiac abscess that you detect on echocardiography, they're going to have a class one indication for early surgical intervention before completing the initial course of, of antibiotics before the patient leaves the hospital. And then patients with large mobile vegetations, again, typically identified with transesophageal echocardiography, they're going to have 
a class 2B indication for early surgery, again, before they complete their initial course of antibiotics during their initial hospitalization. So those are just a few of the key features that we can look for on imaging that can help tip us in one direction about how we manage these patients. It gives us a heads up before they deteriorate to know that an intervention is needed. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, we've successfully treated a patient with endocarditis and we're pleased that things are going along. Um, they're defervescing, they're, they're gonna be set for an outpatient continued course of antibiotics. Um, what about surveillance? Yeah. What do we do in follow-up? Yeah, so there's really three different, a uh, few different ways to approach this. I think, um, if you're uncertain about the diagnosis, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but in terms of surveillance imaging, if the diagnosis is uncertain, sometimes getting a subsequent imaging test five to seven days after the initial imaging test can be quite helpful. This is typically done with a transesophageal echocardiogram. So say you do a TEE, and, and someone may have some degenerative strands on the aortic valve and the clinical picture is a little bit uncertain. Sometimes keeping a close eye on these patients, watching them in the hospital, watching the cultures, continuing the antibiotics. And then, you know, maybe in that five to seven day window, reassessing their valves with the transesophageal echocardiogram. That can be helpful in terms of tipping the diagnosis one way or the other. So that's one use of, of surveillance imaging. Another use of surveillance imaging is what we saw in the POET trial. The POET trial was a study published in New England Journal of about 400 patients published in, in 2018 that looked at the utility of early oral antibiotics versus traditional IV antibiotics. Now, uh, endocarditis, we traditionally treat with four to six weeks of IV antibiotics. What the POET trial did is they took from some of the orthopedic surgery literature that said, hey, maybe we don't need, with prosthetic joint infections, said maybe we don't need to treat these patients with four to six weeks of IV antibiotics. And they said, you know, patients been on seven to 10 days of antibiotics and they're doing well. We do another TEE at that time. And if the TEE doesn't show any evidence of complications, we can switch them to a two-drug oral regimen to complete the duration of their therapy. And they found that that approach, early oral antibiotics was non-inferior to long-term IV antibiotics. It did have the benefit of a shorter length of stay as well. Now, that's there's sort of a niche indication for that, but that did make it into the guidelines this time around as a class 2B indication. So if you're thinking of an early switch to oral antibiotics, you want to get a TEE in that seven to 10-day window to make sure everything's okay. And then the final indication for surveillance imaging would be sort of at the end of therapy. So regardless of whether a patient is ultimately treated with oral or IV antibiotics, um, at the completion of therapy, usually it's in that four to six week window, it's reasonable to get another echocardiogram, typically with a TEE, often can be done with a transthoracic, oftentimes both may be necessary depending on the specific valve lesion involved, to say, to sort of reassess where things stand. What's the degree of regurgitation? Have any new complications developed? How frequently do we need to monitor these patients moving forward? And then you base your surveillance after that on the degree of valve, residual valve lesion that may be remaining. So if a patient has, say, moderate residual mitral regurgitation, you're thinking maybe six to 12 months, we're going to do another imaging modality just to make sure, another imaging um, assessment just to make sure things haven't progressed. So that's how I typically think about surveillance imaging in these patients. Dr. Michael Cullen, thank you so much for joining me. What a fantastic overview on this interesting, complex, and important topic. This is a, this is a very interesting and complex topic. You're absolutely right, uh, Dr. Friedman. It has been a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you again for this opportunity. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic.